The following audio is from Life Journey Church. More information about Life Journey Church is available at www.lifejourneyva.com. Uh, so if this is your first time with us, um, or maybe you haven't been in a while, we've been working through the book of Hebrews. Uh, we're going to take a pause from Hebrews today for a very specific uh, reason. Uh, we'll resume Hebrews next week, so make sure you come back. Uh, we've, been, we've been seeing some amazing things in the book of Hebrews. It's a very challenging things. In fact, I had breakfast this week with a, with a guy, and, and he said something to the effect of, you know, what I'm learning, what we're learning in Hebrews is totally turned everything that I thought about church, about Jesus, about God, about religion, it's turned all of it on its head. And I was very quick to remind him, as I remind us all the time, don't ever just take my word for any of this stuff. This is in your Bible that you carry around. You probably have several copies of this thing in your house. Just read it for yourself. It's really amazing what happens when we stop listening to people and just start listening to the very word of God. But it's been an amazing journey, and I tell you what, man, it's going to get even better if it could. Chapter 4 is going to knock our socks off in a couple of weeks when we get to it. Um, but for those of us who prefer performance-based closeness with God, then it's going to get a little bit more difficult, not better. Because what Hebrews is all about is the reality that Jesus' work on the cross actually worked. It actually worked. And so our closeness with him is not based upon our behavior, upon our actions. It's based upon what Jesus actually has done for us, which, yes, does turn religion totally on its head. But today, we're not going to talk about Hebrews. We're going to talk about this thing that we call Life Journey, the covenant meal. Um, now, why do we call it a covenant meal? I'm sure that uh, if you grew up in church, like me, you called it something like communion. Uh, what are some other names? The Eucharist, the Holy Eucharist, the Holy Communion, uh, Lord, the Lord's Supper. You know, we've called it all these different things. Paul seems to call it the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, so these are all good names, I guess. I don't really know. Um, outside of the context of Life Journey Church, I asked this of a group of people this morning. Have, have you ever heard this referred to as the covenant meal outside the context of our church? I, I hadn't before a couple of years ago when I heard somebody describing it as the covenant meal. Now listen, if you prefer the term communion, if you prefer the term Eucharist, uh, what, what, uh, Lord's Supper, what are some other ones? Is that pretty much all of them? If you prefer the term, look, that's totally fine. I'm not, look, the, the last thing on my agenda is to try to change the title of something. But I want you to understand why we refer to it primarily as the covenant meal. Right here in Matthew 26, uh, Jesus is the, it's the night of his arrest. It's the last supper we've heard this referred to as before. And they were eating. And we'll talk in a second what this context was all about. But while they were eating, Jesus took some bread. Now, he's with his disciples in the upper room. Uh, well, up, uh, well, I don't know. Let me, let me re- rewind that. He's eating with his disciples. And while uh, after a blessing, he took some bread. And after a blessing, he broke it broke the bread, and gave it to disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Verse 27, and when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. Verse 28, for, okay, this is the explanation, and if you've you've heard me say this before, I'll say it again. When you come in scripture with the word F-O-R, okay, it helps you, it's it's an explanation of what the previous things is all about, okay, 
previous things are all about. So when you, it helps you. When you're reading something, it's like, what's that about? If the very next verse says four, well, we'll keep reading. Because that actually helps explain what just happened. And here it is. For, or here's the explanation, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. Do you see that? The blood is, he's talking about, this is the blood of a covenant, of a new covenant. Jesus is using bread and wine to talk about this new covenant that he is about to establish in his death. Again, the context of Matthew 26 is that Jesus and his disciples are finishing up eating what we call the Passover meal. It was a meal that reminded them of God's great deliverance of the Jews from their slavery in Egypt to Pharaoh. Jesus is saying that this bread and this wine that he's now passing out are to forever remind them of God's even greater deliverance of people from slavery, not to Egypt and Pharaoh, but slavery to sin and death itself. Jesus says that in his death, his blood is going to provide forgiveness of sins. You guys, if you're familiar, you know that up until this point, Sin was only forgiven by uh, taking a bull or a goat or, or some sort of acceptable sacrifice, taking it to the temple and having it slaughtered, and the priest de- deeming that you were, were forgiven temporarily of this sin. That was the way it worked until this moment. But now, Jesus is saying that all that's about to change. The very perfect, spotless Lamb of God was about to be sacrificed on the cross to take away, as John the Baptist says, the sin of the world. So so in a sense, think of it this way. Just as Passover was a celebration of God's deliverance from slavery to Egypt and to Pharaoh, this new covenant meal that we call the covenant meal, and we'll probably refer to it as communion and Lord's Supper as well, but, but we really try to emphasize the covenant meal This covenant meal is to remind us of a greater delivery, the delivery of all who believe in Jesus from our slavery to sin, to death, and even, Jesus says in John 5, we've been delivered from judgment. Now, I don't want to step on any toes unnecessarily, uh, but this covenant meal or this Lord's Supper, whatever, whatever phrase you want to call it, it did not start off as a tag-on to the end of a Sunday morning worship service. It's not the way it started off with a, it didn't start off with a stale wafer and a little swig of wine. It's not how it started off. Quite frankly, I don't know how and when it got to, you know, that, you know, practice. I don't know when, I'm not smart enough, I don't know that. But here in Matthew 26, Jesus definitely doesn't have a stale wafer and a little, you know, swig of wine. This is a full-blown meal. It's the full Passover meal. There's all sorts of food. There's all sorts of drink. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul uh, definitely paints the picture of a large meal with plenty of food and plenty of wine, not just a little stale wafer, and a swig. Again, I don't know when that changed, when the celebration of God's deliverance of us from sin changed from a full meal to what we kind of see usually on a Sunday morning. Um, but I want us to realize that that's not how it started. And that's why, as Lou was talking about, we have covenant meals primarily in our community groups. 
We've been doing it this way for over a year now in our community groups. We've had some community groups that have done it totally elaborate. It's like potluck style. I'm talking about my community group where it's like Thanksgiving dinner, hallelujah, right? You got the turkey, you've got the ham. I mean, you got all the fixings. You know, we, we've had some groups that have done it that way. We've had other groups. I think our group that's coming up, it's, it's much more simple because of the busyness of life and the hecticness of, you know, kids. Just some pizza and beer and just simple, simple things. Nothing elaborate. But the point is, it's a huge meal. It's a meal that we sit around and we remember the work of Christ on our behalf. Now, I know, we know that not everyone, because of scheduling, because of life, whatever, is able to attend community group. We understand that. We only have five community groups right now. And they only meet, uh, I think, on three different nights of the week. And so we know that not everybody's able to participate. So I said, look, let's take the time, even though this just little piece of bread and this little piece of, uh, of juice definitely isn't reminiscent of what they actually did originally, let's go ahead and take the time on a Sunday morning to, to participate in this covenant meal as a full body because we want those who are not able to participate in a community group to remember with bread and with a cup the work of Jesus. Now, depending upon your upbringing, your context of this covenant meal, again, Lord's Supper, communion, whatever it is, it's going to be totally diverse depending on your upbringing. You might not have ever grown up in church, and you might not have ever even heard of this thing, and you're like, why is there bread and some juice sitting up on the table? And, and, and I'm glad that, that you're here because we're going to walk through and explain what this is all about. In fact, I kind of envy you a little bit if that's you. But if you grew up with the different variety of different diversity of the way this has happened, we're, we're going to be very diverse in, in, our, in, our, in, our, in our experiences. There's some denominations uh, that say, look, you can do this only if you're a part of our denomination, if you're, if you're only a part of our group. If you're a Christ follower, if you're a follower of Jesus, you believe in Jesus, say that's great, but if you're not a part of our group, then the table's closed to you. Some, some groups do that. Other groups, depending on your upbringing, this was my upbringing, um, my upbringing was this. Okay, anybody who's a believer in Jesus is welcome to take this stuff, but the stipulation, now this is my upbringing, is you're only allowed to take this if and only if you've been baptized in the water after trusting in Jesus. So a scenario would be if we were going to one of these churches that I grew up in, and we're walking in the parking lot, you know, from the parking lot, and uh, you come up to me and say, well, man, t- this morning I-, I-, I have begun to trust in Jesus. Man, this morning I have been born again. Jesus is my rock and my refuge. He's my salvation. And I'm like, wow, hallelujah, that's awesome. And we walk into the building, and they're taking communion. We've got some cups and some, you know, uh, bread up here. And if we're in that group, you're not able to take part in remembering the completed work of Christ on your behalf because you haven't gone and got wet yet. To me, that seems silly. That seems weird. That seems strange. Why are we putting these stipulations on who can and cannot participate in the covenant meal? I've got an idea. I've got a question for you. Who do you think should participate in the covenant meal? Well, I think, I'm just going to go out on the limb here. I think that anybody who's in the covenant ought to participate in the covenant meal. Right? Okay, so let's say that you, are a, you trust in Jesus You are now wed to Christ. He is the groom. You are the bride. You are one with him. But you hadn't got wet yet in baptism. Man, let's go get wet. That's great. Let's do it. There's a beautiful picture of what he's done for us. But why in the world would we say, no, you're not qualified to take part in this? Again, I hope I'm not stepping on toes, but that's that's kind of silly to me. We're putting stipulations on whether or not we can remember what Jesus has done for us. You see that? So, 
Uh, again, I'm not trying to step on toes. I'm just trying to explain who in our view is able to take this bread and this cup this morning. It's someone, anyone, who has transferred their trust from themselves to Jesus. Anyone and everyone who is believing in Jesus, who is holding on to Jesus for life and righteousness and godliness. So, kind of got off of my notes there. Sorry about that. Uh, you can tell that's kind of fresh with me. I'm like, what? Crazy. All right. So, at the end of the day, anyone and everyone who's a part of this new covenant, that is anyone and everyone who is trusting in Jesus, we are to remember this work of Jesus dying for us. So in a minute, we're going to pass the uh, cup and the, and the bread around. And all those who are trusting this morning in Jesus, take one of these and remember what Jesus has done. What he says here in, Rome, uh, in Matthew 26, that his blood was poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So if you trust in Jesus this morning, you, man, listen, this is awesome. Your sin has been forgiven. He died for your sins. Well, I want to spend a little bit of time before we do this talking about another awesome element of this death of Jesus. I think we all are are at least hearing, we're embracing the fact that Jesus died for sins. I'm sure that that's not news to to anybody this morning, especially if you've been coming to Life Journey. Jesus died for sins. But did you know that Jesus, listen, also died, this is very important, he also died in his death to sin. He didn't just die for sins, that's wonderful, that's awesome, but he actually died to sin. We're going to look, we're going to walk very briefly through Romans 6 this morning, and we're going to look at something that we don't look at enough, and we don't talk about enough. Yes, absolutely, Jesus died for our sins. Thank you, Jesus. But his death was also to sin, not just for sin. When we read and we talk about that Jesus died for sins, we tend to think about sinning, sinning that we've done, sinning that we're doing, sinning that we're going to do, the verbs, the actions, all the sins of our lives. But in Romans 6, we're going to see that Jesus, yeah, he definitely died for all of our sins, but he actually also died to sin, singular. It's singular here, not plural. We've got to see that sin is not just a verb. A lot of times we think of the actions, the sinnings, if that's a word. But sin first is a noun. Let's be honest. When we typically talk about sin, we typically think about the actions, the verbs. Lying, cheating, stealing, right? These sorts of things. Lusting. But sin first is a noun. Yes, it's manifested in verb, but it's a noun at its core. Here's an example. Look at Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. Now, if you don't remember the context here, uh, Cain is about to kill Abel, okay? And God graciously comes to Cain, and he gives him some warning. And this this is God talking to Cain. He says, this is God talking. He says, Cain, sin is crouching at your door. And its desire, sin's desire, is for you. But you must master it. Do you see how God is personifying sin? Do you see that? It's, it's crouching. How does lying 
crouch. He's not talking about the verb. How does murder crouch? He's not talking about the action. He's talking about the, the thing, this, this parasite, this, this entity, this noun called sin that is crouching at the door of Cain's heart life and its desire is set against Cain, wanting to destroy Cain. Now we know the story if you've you know, read Genesis 4. Cain does sin. He does commit the verb of murder, but it's only because the noun, sin itself, had taken control of him. So yes, let me be very, very clear that Jesus died for sins, for our sins on our behalf. He died for every single sinful action. He died for every single sinful verb that we'll ever do. But he also died to sin. So that when we celebrate, this is why we're talking about this before we pass the cup and the the bread. So that when we celebrate this broken bread and the blood that was shed, I want us to celebrate the fullness of what Jesus actually has done. We're not just forgiven from sin, we are, but we're actually free from sin itself the noun, the thing, the parasite that still lives in our flesh. And so I want to show you very quickly what, 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 what we mean, what Paul is, how Paul explains this in Romans chapter 6. But we actually have to start with the last two verses of Romans chapter 5 just to build some context. Okay, so starting in chapter 5, verse 20, Paul says this. The law came, okay, the law of Moses, the law came so that the transgression, sinning, would increase. Say that again very, very slowly. The law came so that sinning, transgression, would increase. And we may need to pause real quick, pick somebody off the floor. <laughs> or maybe some of the jaws that are hanging down, we need to pick them back up a little bit. Paul says that the law, the Mosaic law, God's perfect law, which starts, of course, we know with the Ten Commandments, we hold dear. The law was given so that sin, transgression, would actually increase. Now, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second, Paul. Okay, you, you've gone off the reservation this time, Paul. I thought that sin, the law was given to curb sin, to reduce it, to get a handle on this sinning problem. Well, not according to the Holy Spirit and not according to Paul. According to the Holy Spirit, the law was given so that there would be more sinning, not less sinning. And Paul even gives an example of this in a couple of verses that we're not going to actually cover today. He says that he never would have known that coveting was sinful until there was a commandment. In fact, the 10th commandment of the 10 commandments that said, do not covet. And once he realized that that was wrong within him, sin took advantage of that and said, Sin wanted to covet all the more because it realized that it was actually wrong. So the law was given according to the Holy Spirit, according to Paul, to increase sinning. The Ten Commandments and the rest of the law were not given to reduce sinning, but to increase it. Wow. But why? Why would God do that? I mean, that's a question I've got. Why would God want to increase sinning? Does God like sinning? Well, continue reading. Don't ever stop reading. (laughs) We get in trouble. But where sin increased because the law was given, grace abounded all the more. Wow, this is awesome. In other words, where there's a lot of sin, there's even more grace. 
Sin was increased so that the full measure of God's riches of grace would be on display towards people. And he goes on to say in verse 21, this happens so that as sin reigned in death, and it did, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, I wish that we could talk about what these verses are, are, are saying in more detail, but I just wanted to read these to get a context for chapter 6, which is the very next verse. So there's not a, Matthew, uh, there's not a Romans 5.22. Matthew 5.22 is like, you know, I'm, uh, uh, yeah, Matthew 5.22 is like Romans 6.1, okay? So there is no Matthew 5, uh, Romans 5.22. This is a context for uh, Romans um, 5. 21. My mom used to always say, I'm not six foot tall, I'm, I'm five foot 12. Uh, so there's not a five foot 12, okay? There's not a Romans 5.22. This is the very next verse, goes into Romans 6. So let me ask you, if, if there's always more grace, okay, this is grace, if there's always more grace when there's more sin, so let's say sin piles up, but there's always more grace, what would our logical response be when we see that? If more sinning results in more grace, then why not, what? Sin all the more, right? Sin all the more. I mean, think about it. If there's no penalty, if there's no condemnation, if there's no judgment for sinning anymore because of what Jesus has done, then why not sin it up, all right? Now, why not get that license of, to sin and just go crazy? Why not go out and, and do whatever, however, whenever we want because... No matter how high we pile the sins up, grace is always higher. That's the context of Romans 6. Now let's turn the page to verse six, chapter 6, verse 1. Paul says, well, he, he, this is what he said. What shall we say then? Right? He's, he's, he's building this argument. Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? See that? He's answering this argument that he knows people are going to ask. And maybe you've asked it, listening to some of our preaching here at Life Journey. Well, well wait a second. Well, if, if we're really forgiven and we don't have to keep account and get forgiveness daily, then what, why, not, why, why not just go out and sin all we want? Well, well, Paul knew that that question would be asked. And he answers it. And here we go. If more sin means more grace, then why not continue in sin? And Paul says, <laughs> may it Never be. Now this is English, right? The Greek is meganeo, which is kind of a dirty word of sorts, or very, very close to it. And Paul is being so emphatic with this, may it never be, and you can kind of fill in some blanks there if you want. It is, it is, it is, it is almost as, as it's borderline using some dirty words from Paul to, to show the emphasis that this is the wrong way of thinking. Paul's saying, how could you even think such a thing? Continue in sin? What are you thinking that we should continue in sin to make grace abound more? And then he says this, he explains it. How shall we, who, look at this, died to sin, still live in it? How can we who died to sin still live in it? Whoa, 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 whoa. We died to sin? How did we die to sin? When did we die to sin? Well, look at verse 3. Don't stop reading. Verse 3 says, 
Well, maybe you don't know that you've died to sin. I love this. He's like, well, may, you know, I've never met you guys before face to face. I'm writing a letter. Maybe I'll get there one day. Oh, maybe you don't know. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Maybe you've heard this. Maybe you've only heard that he died for sins. Well, let me make sure. Maybe you haven't heard this. Maybe you have. Don't you know? Maybe you do know. Maybe you don't know. So I'm going to explain this. And I'm going to spend a whole chapter of 6 and chapter of 7 explaining this, that you actually have died to sin because you have been baptized into Christ. Baptized. Let's, 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 Let's think of the imagery of the water. But the idea is you have been placed into Christ. Just like when we do baptism, we place someone into the water. That's a picture of when someone starts trusting in Christ, they are placed into him. Now, why are we placed into Christ's death? I think that's a good question. If you weren't asking the question, I think you should ask it because Paul answers it. Look at verse 4. He says, therefore, this is why we've been placed into his death. We have been buried with him through baptism into his death. Here's the answer. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We were placed into his death so that we would be placed into his what? Life. You see that? We can't be placed into his life unless we were placed into his death. Now let's don't get hung up, and I don't have much time to explain this, but let's don't get hung up on this word might. You see, we can read this, and it kind of comes across as perhaps potential one day future. We might walk in newness of life. We were placed into his death so that we might one day. You see how it kind of sounds that way? We might one day walk in the newness of life. Here's an illustration I heard somebody use. Hopefully it's helpful, maybe it's not. But if I this morning, uh, if I told you this morning, I walked into Mudhouse, and Mudhouse is a coffee shop here in town. I walked into Mudhouse so that I might get a mud cup. Mud cup, awesome, it's a shot of espresso, the rest of it coffee. Nice caffeine for a morning, especially when you got a newborn. Um, I walked into Mudhouse so that I might get a mud cup. If I said that to you, what am I probably holding in my hand? What am I definitely holding in my hand? A mud cup. You see that? I walked into Mud House so that I might get a mud cup. So I've got a mud cup now because I walked in. Well, that's what this is saying. He says, we were buried with him through baptism into his death so that as Christ was raised from the dead in the glory of the Father, we too might walk in this newness of life. So if you've been placed into his death, if you've been begun to trust in him, then what do you have? You have newness of life. It's really awesome. We shouldn't let our lack of understanding of the English language rob the joy of this life that we actually have now in Christ. Verse 5 says, uh, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, and we have, if we trust in him, certainly we shall also be uh, in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, verse 6, that our old self was crucified with him. This old self that Paul talks about, it's that old man that you've heard us talk about. It's the old spiritual man that we were born with that was dead to God at birth but alive to sin. This old nature, this old self at its core is our origin in Adam. It was crucified with Jesus. The old you that you were born with when you began trusting in Jesus was crucified with Adam. Why? Why? I love this. 
You've got to ask good questions like why? Why were we, why was our old self crucified with him? In order that our body of sin might be done away with. Literally, that says, so that the sin that lives in our flesh might be brought, become, sorry, impotent. No power whatsoever. So why did we die with Christ? Why was our old man crucified? To bring the sin that lives in our body to render it powerless. To render it powerless. God renders this parasite of sin that lives in our flesh. Think noun, don't think verb here. He renders it powerless, impotent. Well, why did he do that? So that we would no longer be what? Slaves to sin. So that we would no longer be slaves to this parasite, this noun, this thing that entered into the human race way back with Adam and Eve. We'd no longer be slaves to it. For he who has died is what? Oh, sorry, you hadn't advanced. Sorry, hold up, it's coming. For he who has, there we go. For he who has died is what? Come on, come on. For he who has died is what? Free. Free from sin. He who has died is free from sin. So who died? Well, we know Jesus died, right? Jesus died on our behalf. But what Paul is saying is that maybe you didn't know, but you actually died with him if you trust in him. Our old sin-stained man was crucified with Jesus so that a very brand new man, not like the old man kind of spit-shined and a little bit better, but a brand new man, totally new, a new creation, Paul calls it in 2 Corinthians 5, a brand new you would be raised to newness of life, totally free from this thing of sin that definitely still lives in our flesh. Continuing along in verse 8, Paul says, now if we have died with Christ, okay, who's that? Who has died with Christ? All those who believe in him. Now that we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ has been raised from the dead to never die again. Death is no longer the master over Jesus, because Jesus died and rose from the dead. Verse 10, man, please listen to this. For the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. I mean, when we get to that two sin part, let's say that together. This is so awesome. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. The death he died, which again, every single one of us who believe in Jesus participated also in that death. Remember that. He died to sin once and for all. Now, why did Jesus die to sin? I know I'm asking a lot of questions. Why did Jesus die to sin once and for all? Well, let me ask a simpler question. Why did Jesus die for sins? Why did he die for sins? Well, we know that answer. He died for sins to remove them from our account. He died for sins to to provide forgiveness for us. We, we agree with that, right? We, we agree that Jesus didn't die for his own sins. He died for our sins, right? So what's this question again? Why did Jesus die to sin? Was Jesus joined to sin? Was Jesus united to sin? Was Jesus wed to sin and the only way out was through his death? In order for Jesus to be free from it? Look, man, I don't think so. that's the case at all. 
In fact, Jesus had no relationship to sin that needed to be severed through his death. Please listen. Just as Jesus' death for sins was because of our sins, listen, this is so cool, Jesus' death to sin was because of our union to sin. Jesus died not just for sins. Oh, he did, but not just for sins. He died to sin so that we would be definitely, totally forgiven of all of our sin that we'll ever do, but that we would also be totally free from our relationship to this thing called sin itself. Again, think noun, not verb. This parasite, this entity. Sin certainly still lives in our flesh, but we, the real us, has died to sin with Jesus, thus ending our relationship with this old parasite of sin that entered into the human race way back with Adam. So the scripture says, he died to sin once and for all, to sever that relationship, to sever that marriage that we had with sin. But the life that he lives, he lives united to who now? To God. Look at this. This is so awesome. Jesus died to sin, and we who trust in Jesus also died to sin, meaning we're no longer joined to it. Our dysfunctional marriage with sin has ended. It's powerless. It is impotent over the real us, the new us in Christ. But this life that Jesus lives, having died to sin, Jesus lives it now to God. So what does that mean for those of us who trust in Jesus? We aren't just freed from this slave relationship to sin and left on our own. We're actually joined to the very God who loves us and gave his very son for us. That's good news. That's really, really good news. We are actually joined to God. And I know, you know, we don't really do this a whole lot, but if somebody wants to say, wow, or amen, or that's good stuff, that's a good time to do it. We're no longer joined to sin. If we're in Christ, we're now joined to God himself. Man, this is awesome. We'll talk about this enough. Chapter, verse 11, this is the last one. This is kind of his summary. Keep reading. We don't have time to keep reading through Romans 6. Keep reading on your own. This is kind of his summary here. He says, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. How can we consider ourselves dead to sin? How can we do that? How can we we consider ourselves dead to sin? Because we are, baby. We are dead to sin. How can we consider ourselves alive to God? Because we are alive to him if we are in Christ, if we've been placed into Christ by grace through faith. If we're in Christ, we are dead to sin and we are alive to God. This is what it means, Paul says, to continue in faith. We can't see with our eyeballs the fact that the old man has been cut away and was crucified and a brand new man and brand new creation was given to us. We can't see with with our eyeballs. At least I can't. Maybe you got some cool glasses. I can't see that. So we are to continue trusting in this amazing message of hope and life in Christ and never, ever revert back to this living based only on what we can see. 
as we or if we truly see with our mind's eye that we are in fact dead to sin and alive to God in Christ, our lives, listen, will be radically, radically changed. Paul is saying that if we see this, even though grace abounds all the more when we sin, okay, that's true, but if we see that we're actually dead to sin, our relationship with it is ended, our desire would never be to increase in sinning, because we're actually dead to it. We're dead to it. I'm trying to find that clip from, I think, Godfather, where he talks about, you're dead to me. You know, we're, we're dead to it. We're dead to this thing of sin. So what are the practical implications? Is this all just like some cool Romans 6 theology? Or is there some practical reality to this? Man, this, this, man, this is so practical. For one, if we see... And as we believe that we are dead to sin but alive to God, I believe this. Instead of sin being manifested through our bodies, the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of Christ's Spirit himself will begin to be manifested through our bodies. As we see that we are dead to sin, as we see that we have no relationship with that old parasite anymore, even the deepest, darkest, habitual sins will become less and less attractive and more repulsive because we've actually died to that garbage. We've actually died to that one who wants to rear its ugly head through our flesh. We're dead to it. Let me put it this way. As we see that we are dead to sin because of Jesus' death and alive to God because of Jesus' life, we will see life beginning to manifest through us instead of death. It's awesome. And this is what we celebrate every day as a church. We celebrate, yes, that we are forgiven from all of our sin. Absolutely. But we also celebrate every day, and especially today when we take this bread and this cup, that we are actually free from our slavery to sin itself. We set aside this opportunity here this morning and in our community groups all November long. I encourage you, like Lou did, to go to our website. There's just too much to pull in, put into the bulletin. Go to the website. Very first thing to click and see the dates and times of all five of our community groups when they're having these covenant meals and join in with them. If you've never been to a community group ever before, man, this is a perfect time to come in. In fact, we made it so simple. You can click on the little date and it'll automatically, or I mean, you have to type, but you'll, it'll open up an email for you to email that group leader to say, hey, I'm, I'm coming, what can I bring? We made it really, really easy for you to be able to participate. So in our, all November long, we want to celebrate not just, though it's awesome in itself enough, that we're forgiven from all of our sin, but we're actually free. Free from this thing called sin. There's so much that, more that I wish I could, we could talk about, about our death in Christ and our life in Christ. But I want all of us, as we wrap up this morning, to celebrate together this reality that we are in fact dead to sin and alive now to Christ, to God in Christ Jesus. We're going to take some bread and we're going to take a cup. and We may do this differently next time we do this. It's been a year since we've done it. We have about twice as many people in here than we did last time. So we might do it different next time. But this time I've actually asked a couple of our leaders to come up and help pass this stuff out. So if you guys would come on up. The, we've got five guys, who are going to, five guys and gals who are going to come and help. And the way this has worked, they're just going to grab a plate of bread. And you guys can go ahead and head to your aisle. And they're going to pass it through. Pass it through the aisles. And if today you trust in Jesus, 
then we want you to take a piece of bread. If you don't trust in Jesus, if you're not a part of the covenant, you can certainly let it pass in front of you. But if you're in the covenant, you have trusted in Jesus, man, I encourage you to take a piece of this bread. As you hold this bread, um, Jesus says in Matthew 26 that this is a picture of his body that was broken. Jesus says, uh, Scripture says that Jesus took the bread and he broke it. And then he started handing it out. Think of that imagery, okay, as you look at that little piece of bread. Think of that imagery that Jesus' own body was about to be broken. This was the night of his arrest. It was about to be broken. It was about to be beaten, be whipped, flogged, mutilated in order to forgive us from our sin and to actually end our slavery to sin. As you get your piece of bread, I encourage you, man, just simply say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for willingly laying down your body, laying down your life for me. Thank you for your body that was broken for me. Thank you for becoming my sin so that I would become now in Christ your righteousness. And you go ahead and eat your piece of bread. Our guys are going to come back up and we're now going to pass around a cup um, Jesus, pretty clear that he served wine to his disciples. And, uh, in the letter to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 11, it's pretty clear that they were serving wine. Uh, in most of our, my, all of our community groups, we, we you know, have wine available. But I decided this morning for us to use a non-alcoholic wine, a.k.a. grape juice, um, I just figured it would be best in the event that there might be an individual under the age of 21 whose parents might not be cool with their child taking some wine. So if this is so out of respect to parents, you know, we, we went with grape juice. If, if this is offensive to those who think it should be only one, I apologize to you, but just help us and be respectful of some of our parents. Um, but as our servers pass out these cups, let me just ask you, I know that I've asked a lot of questions, I'm sorry, but let me ask one more. Can you believe it? Can you believe it? Can you believe that God the Son would take on our form of flesh and blood and then have his flesh broken and have his blood shed out of his body to remove our sins from us? Man, what do you do with that? That's so amazing. God took our form in order to spill his blood so that we could be forgiven from all our sin and be free from our slavery to sin. Listen, this is so cool. When he found us, we were dead in our sins, a slave to this parasite called sin. But now, because of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, we are now forgiven and free. God found us dirty and distant. But now because of Jesus, we are clean and we are close. In Jeremiah 31, God says that the day was going to come when he would establish a new covenant. A new covenant would be established that is nothing like the old covenant. He said that this new covenant would be possible because he would forgive us of all our sin, Jeremiah 31, 34, of all our sin, and he would remember our sin. Does anybody remember? No more. 
That's amazing. He says, in this new covenant, what Jesus is establishing in his death, God the Father would remember our sin. How much? No more. No more. This cup that you're holding is a picture of the blood of Jesus that was shed in order to establish this new covenant where he has removed our sin to the point where God remembers them no more. This is so cool. I mean, Jesus is basically saying, listen, I want you guys to take this cup and this bread, do this in remembrance of my work, my work of removing your sin, my work of even ending your slavery to sin. It's like Jesus is saying, remember often that God remembers your sin no more. We forget that, don't we? Maybe we had not even been taught that like the Romans. And Paul says, maybe you hadn't even heard this. Remember, as we take this cup, that God remembers our sin no more. Man, what a Savior. If you have your cup, I want you to raise it with me in a toast. A toast to our great Savior Jesus, who fought in our place, who died in our place, who suffered in our place, who was betrayed in our place, who was despised in our place, who absorbed the wrath of God in our place, something we could never do. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Amen. I'm going to pray over us. And our band is going to come up, and we're going to close out in a couple of worship songs this morning that we pick specifically in light of this amazing news of what Jesus has done for us. If you have to leave, I know some have to leave when we start the music. You know, if you have to leave, please you know, feel free to. But I really encourage us all to stay and sing these two songs from the depths of our soul in this reality of what Jesus has actually done. We are forgiven. We are free. We are clean in Christ. We are close. And I'm going to come up afterwards and close out our service. Father, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for what Jesus has done and that he took away all our sin. But not just that. That's amazing in and of itself. But he actually died to sin so that we who have been placed in him also have died to sin. It's no longer our master. Yes, it still lives in our flesh. Yes, we can still give it permission to rear its ugly head through us. Yes, we still, uh, we still sin in this flesh. Yes, but we're dead to it. We're dead to it. And Father, let that reality Be fresh on our minds as we today consider ourselves dead to sin, but alive to you in Christ Jesus. Thank you for listening to this message from Life Journey Church. Feel free to distribute this podcast, but please do not charge for it or alter it in any way. For more information about Life Journey Church, visit us at www.lifejourneyva.com.